So each evening we'll have a talk, as many of you know from past retreats, a little um, more time to talk about some of the uh, core teachings. And this evening I want to talk about the nature of shamatha practice or developing uh, samadhi. And I want to want to invite you as the talk occurs to see if you can keep your practice of cultivating samadhi going in the midst of in the midst of the talk. I can remember myself attending retreats uh, dedicated to the cultivation of samadhi and um, keeping the practice going. Yeah. So see if, see if that can work for you. So I want to talk about a few different areas in relationship to the development of samadhi. Um, a little bit more about the nature of samadhi and shamatha practice. Some about the, the place and importance of cultivating samadhi in our larger practice in, in the context of this retreat. A little bit on further ways to cultivate uh, samadhi or concentration. And more on some of the challenges of our practice of cultivating samadhi. And then lastly, a little bit on how the cultivation of samadhi is really important for our insight practice that really is um, building a foundation for what we do next in this retreat, which will be to um, emphasize sort of the fundamental insights that are connected with insight practice into impermanence, into the nature of dukkha or suffering or reactivity, into the nature of the self. So first um, wanted to try to make a clear distinction between the development of samadhi or concentration and mindfulness practice. And some of you have asked about this in the groups. And there can be some confusion about this in part because the main way that mindfulness has been taught in centers like Spirit Rock and IMS and a number of other centers comes especially from the teachings of Mahasi Sayadaw of Burma. And his way of um, teaching mindfulness actually was a kind of a hybrid of development of samadhi and development of mindfulness. Some of you, probably most of us, have experienced the core instructions where we're invited first to be with the breath, develop some stability, and then when we have a certain amount of stability, bring the attention to changing objects, right? To whatever is predominant. How many are familiar with that model? And how many have, have learned essentially that model? And it's actually somewhat of a hybrid because we develop a certain minimal level of, of um, samadhi or concentration and then we turn it to changing objects, usually, usually focusing on the breath. 
And so if we were to be a little more precise, we would say that um, the development of samadhi is about focusing on one object for the purposes of gaining stability, settling, one-pointedness. And we would actually stay with the one object. And then the uh, mindfulness practice typically works with changing objects. You know, sometimes it, as in the method given by Mahasi Sayadaw, the mindfulness is to attend to whatever is predominant. But in most of the forms of mindfulness that we have in the teachings of the Buddha, he actually is telling us to focus here, look at the body, look at the breath, look at the, uh, this, this aspect of bodily experience, or look at the second foundation, look at the feeling tone, the sense of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. We'll come back to that when we look at, particularly at, at dukkha. Thirdly, the third foundation, more or less looking at thoughts and emotions. So focus here, focus here. So um, this is all to say that there are different ways of teaching and practicing mindfulness. Uh, What I just described is the traditional teaching of the Buddha. But essentially, if I had to distinguish concentration from mindfulness, concentration is focusing on one object and the practice of mindfulness is especially focusing on um, changing objects. That'd be one distinction. And it's also um, involved, there's there's a way that we, um, with mindfulness, we're knowing that we're experiencing something. We're, We're mindful of thought. I know that I'm experiencing thought. Whereas with concentration, we're not so concerned with knowing that we're focusing. So mindfulness has a quality of knowing that we're knowing, if if that makes sense. They're deeply related and really um, samadhi is really crucial for mindfulness. This is from Achan Cha from the the, uh, Thai forest tradition whom I had the pleasure of studying, of of practicing with. And he said this, meditation is like a single stick of wood. Insight meditation is one end of the stick and shamatha or the development of samadhi is the other. If we pick it up, does only one end come up or do both? Insight has to develop out of peace and tranquility. The entire process happens naturally of its own accord. So he's really pointing to the way that ultimately they get unified. We have stability of mind, and then we're with changing objects. In another uh, beautiful passage, he talks about the unity of insight and samadhi as being like still water flowing. He says, you've never seen anything like this. Still water flowing, right? So there's a a kind of a a general stillness, but within that there's flow. 
That's, that's a simple distinction. So the samadhi is more about the stillness, but we can bring that stillness to seeing the flow. And then we have still water flowing. Okay. <laughs> So uh, samadhi, I would say, is a natural quality of mind that we can develop and that we develop in this practice that probably many of us, maybe even on this retreat, have memories of deep samadhi when we were children. It's not uncommon on these kind of retreats to remember experiences when there was a deep kind of um, stillness and settling. You know, I know that when I was practicing, I remembered having these experiences um, by the ocean. I grew up in the Washington D.C. area, and would we'd often go to the ocean, to the uh, ocean around Maryland in Maryland. And and um, some of you maybe know anyone been to Ocean City, right? Great. Okay, we can talk about it later. Okay, and so, but I remember sometimes as a child, uh, just coming from the ocean and lying down on the sand in the sun, and going into a kind of absorption state, like almost like a, I don't know, trance maybe isn't the right word, but it was like this. It was intensely pleasurable, right? And there was no nothing much happening, but it was like an absorption my consciousness was just really, really settled, you know, and does anyone else kind of remember childhood experiences of being really settled? It's, yeah, they, they sometimes come. And so it's a very natural quality we can see. I remember, I think it was part of a concentration retreat and watching out in the fields, a heron, a heron staring very intently at what, might have become lunch. And the level of samadhi was, mm, it was, it was, it was something. You know, so it's a very natural quality that we find in humans, I think in other beings. You know, imagine again uh, uh, a heron or another animal really intent on something, it can be really focused. Uh, This is the Buddha on describing samadhi as natural. There comes a time when one's mind becomes inwardly steadied, composed, unified, and concentrated. That concentration is then calm and refined. It has attained to full tranquility and achieved uh, unification of the mind and heart. It is not maintained anymore by needing to strenuously suppress what gets in the way. It's the natural stability and stillness. So there's something I find very beautiful about shamatha practice. We keep, we really just do one thing. There's a simplicity and an ease. We don't have to think too much about what we have to do, right? Okay, just one thing. And I, and I think of a, 
quotation I remembered from the philosopher Kierkegaard who said, purity of heart is to will one thing. I guess we could find doing one thing boring, right? But we could, I find it also, there's a simplicity and a, of almost like my life is simple now. I'm just doing one thing. I don't need to figure anything out, right? And I find there's something quite uh, wonderful about that and suggest it can be like that. So I mentioned that there are many forms by which we can uh, practice shamatha practice, focus on one object. Uh, the breath is very common. The Buddha, before, while he was studying with uh, traditional yogic teachers of what's now India, uh, practiced mindfulness of breathing going into deep states. And I mentioned there were, you know, in, in the uh, compilation called The Path of Purification, there are 40 different ways to focus. Some of them with eyes closed, some of them with eyes open. Staring at colored discs uh, is a very traditional way. Uh, again, the heart practices, uh, you know, not, not on that list, but I, I have a friend whose practice is chanting much of the day. That can be a kind of concentration. We can also be there uh, with sound. You know, and as we, as we deepen, we can, the mind can become quite still. And um, at times we can have a, have a sense of our samadhi being quite stable. You know, probably many of us have experienced this at times. And that can, that can be uh, something we touch here. And we'll, I think I mentioned that we'll be keeping the cultivation of samadhi going throughout the whole retreat. It's not like we're going to drop it and focus on insight, but we'll be staying with the development of samadhi. So it can be something that we see some development in through the course of our week here together. And one of, one of the uh, findings from the uh, neurosciences and the research that's very interesting is that um, uh, samadhi is located in a particular part of the brain and it can be learned that there is actually, as we practice more, um, essentially the brain knows what to do as we develop samadhi more. What that means is that uh, if we keep on practicing it, we don't keep going back to square one. The base level is higher, as it were, over time. I certainly see that very, very clearly in my own experience. The baseline now, quite different from the way it was five years ago or 10 years ago. And again, the, the research supports that. So that's, that's encouraging, isn't it? You can, that, we can keep, that we can actually learn and the brain, you know, we say, okay, 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 Donald, Cultivate samadhi. And the brain says, I know that. Here we go. <laughs> right? It's a little bit like that. It's like, so um, I think that's encouraging. So, you know, why is, uh, why is the cultivation of samadhi important? You know, ultimately it's going to be because it gives us a basing, basis for liberating insight. 
And without the stability of mind, we can't see clearly into impermanence, into what keeps us reactive or you know, resisting experience, you know, what, what is called dukkha. And we don't see clearly into our nature of ourselves and we tend to um, get fixated on the sense of self. And we need that stability of mind and the quietness of mind to see clearly. You know, these three areas uh, are, are called by different names. Sometimes they're called the three characteristics. We'll go into those starting tomorrow night. And sometimes the phrase I like is really focusing on them as ways of practicing or ways of seeing. And we could call them the three ways of seeing that bring liberating insight. And they require um, significant stability of mind. That's the primary reason for cultivating samadhi. There are a lot of side benefits along the way. <laughs> um, can be a lot of... Uh, a lot of bliss and pleasure with the still mind. As many of you know, the, some of the subtle energies of the body open up. There can be, there can be bliss. There can be uh, quite a lot of pleasure. Um, and it can be a good thing. You know, sometimes Buddhist practice gets, a, I think, an unfair rap for being a little bit negative, emphasizing suffering, don't grasp at pleasure. <laughs> Sounds a little bit, what? Uh, what's the word? Um, serious. <laughs> uh, but there, there's, there's a place. I'll talk more about that. The, the place of, uh, of, and, and importance really of pleasure and even bliss in developing, in developing samadhi. And what really opens up a lot of this territory is that with samadhi, we especially cut through the repetitive automatic conceptual mind, the repetitive thinker. Of course, thinking is crucial and valuable and Many of us make our livings by careful thinking, right? And so it's very crucial, but it also is good, as it were, not to be dominated by it, not to be dominated by thinking. And the cultivation of samadhi really takes us out of being dominated by our habitual automatic thinking. And so it's a great, uh, partly a great relief, but it's also, that's what opens up the ability to see clearly. And without the presence of samadhi, the mind is much more active. Our habitual mind tendencies can take us over, as we know. As we're more stable, we see the repetitive thoughts more quickly. Probably how many of you, you know, know that very well from your own experience? As there's more stability, we see repetitive thoughts more quickly. We can notice them. We don't, you know, we, we don't uh, stay with them or get caught in them quite so much. 
when when the samadhi is strong, temporarily we can actually suppress all the all actually negative patterns and negative habits, and we can have a kind of temporary sense of peace and of of uh, stability. Ultimately, the deeper peace comes with insight as well. So the peace that comes with samadhi is going to be temporary. The peace that comes with insight linked with samadhi can be much more stable and permanent. That's what we're looking for in the long run. That's really, really our aim. One of the other really beautiful qualities of cultivating samadhi, I think this is true generally of meditation, is that we get a sense that of, the, of the power of the inner life. And of that, you know, we can sometimes feel, oh, just developing the inner life, sometimes we might feel, gosh, for at least a period of time, that's all I want. There's a, there's a kind of um, beauty and power and self-sufficiency at times of the inner life that we can experience, we experience on retreats. And I think ultimately we very much, I think all of us very much teach the balance of that deep, uh, inner quality with responding to the outer needs of our communities and our world, right? And bringing those together. And I think that's an intensely beautiful combination, not so common. Um, the Buddha, practitioners develop samadhi a practitioner who is who has samadhi understands things as they really are. And then he points to, guess what? Impermanence, dukkha, anatta, or not self. Someone who has samadhi sees those three things. Without the peace of samadhi, without attaining to calm, without one-pointedness, that one should enter and free the mind through insight without samadhi that is not possible. Okay. Okay, you accept the advertisement? Ready to buy the product? It's so funny, I just, just say something. I, I, I don't know if you noticed this, but walking down to the community meditation hall for the groups, I don't know where if you walk by there, seeing all the Buddhas on a line, all with price tags. <laughs> Have you, did you notice that? <laughs> it struck me as really weird. <laughs> Would have been really beautiful just to see the Buddhas, but with the price tags. <laughs> anyway, you, you, you picked up on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Hmm. So, so we stay just with the, the one object. We just focus on one part of our experience. Again, for most of us, the breath. For others, it could be uh, some other sensations in the body, or for some, could be metta. And we, uh, we just enjoy that. I, I thought I'd tell a story um, you know, that, that I got from my, my mom, who, who was a, a musician. And 
she was kind of funny. She would like to meditate, and when we would when we would um, meditate together, she would say, "Only concentration practice. No mindfulness. Just concentration." And, and then and later she said, "She's a, I told, said she's a musician, and she said uh, music is her concentration practice. That she would." Uh, play music and go into a deeply absorbed state. You know, again, like maybe we've experienced, uh, I've experienced that sometimes in writing, you know, where, you know, I, I think I particularly remember one time when I was in college, I generally didn't in college do all-nighters. Remember those? <laughs> Anyone do all-nighters? <laughs> okay. okay, a lot. I think I did it just once or twice, but one time I did it, I remember, and uh, it was like six or eight hours finishing an essay. And the level of absorption was, uh, I had not meditated at that point, and the level of absorption was so great, I was just like six hours and then no sense of time. And it, it just went right. Uh, it just happened. I think the essay was good, but it was just real. And then I, I stayed up till dawn and walked out into the dawn, and it was like, I hadn't seen a dawn like that, right? My mind was, I think, really, really still, absorbed, and everything was just right, almost like pulsating, right? And anyone experience something like that and being really, really focused, maybe in an activity? Yeah, it's really, it's really something. So um, I think my, my mom, her name is Bernice, was Bernice. Uh, she learned this at a young age because she... Um, she she uh, had music lessons when she was young, like five or six or seven. And when she was seven, she was asked to play the piano for the other people in her group. And she, and she told the teacher, you know, I'm kind of anxious and nervous. I want to do a good job. And the teacher said, um, when you play music, don't think of yourself. Just let yourself be taken over by the music. And she was seven, and she said, okay. <laughs> And she didn't think about herself at all. And, and she told me that story like a long time later. And so, uh, you know, and I, I wrote a little poem about that. I said, my mother Bernice says that music is her concentration practice. And giving a concert, if there's a sense of self or of how one's doing, it's not good, she says. You have to let yourself be taken over by the music. May we all be taken over by the music. My little poem. And um, so I think we see those qualities. This is where you know, we can, if we, and we partly experience that in activities, we can really um, have that sense of samadhi in many activities, in creative work, in music. I think ultimately in doing the dishes, we find it in sports, right? Sometimes it's called uh, playing in the zone. Do you know that phrase? You know, and, uh, you know, athletes go into a deeply locked-in sense of samadhi in which there's no self-consciousness. There's almost sometimes no sense of anything but the, uh, you know, people playing basketball say, the basket is as as big as the ocean, (laughs) right? And so I think I want to point to the ways that that, uh, that samadhi really is there in so many, and it's unusual, right? It's athletes, you know, uh, 
I actually have a friend named Andrew Cooper who wrote a beautiful book called Playing in the Zone about sports and, and meditation, basically. And he has a quote uh, from the great basketball player Bill Russell, you know, who uh, grew up in San Francisco and was with the Boston Celtics. How many people know of Bill Russell? Yeah, okay, very good. <laughs> yeah. And he said, uh, I'll read a quote from Bill Russell. You know, at this special level, he says, all sorts of odd things happened. It was almost as if we were playing in slow motion. During these times, I could almost sense how the next play would develop and where the next shot would be taken. Even before the other team brought the ball in bounds, I could feel it so keenly that I'd want to shout to my teammates, it's coming there, except I knew everything would change if I did. <laughs> my premonitions would be consistently correct. And I always felt then that I not only knew all the Celtics by heart, but all the opposing players, and that they also knew me. And he said later, and I never talked about it. Right, he kept it to himself until he got interviewed later. I mentioned at the 2.30 session that there are ways that samadhi deepens. And I want to talk a little bit about um, a few elements of a teaching uh, called, it's called, they're typically called the five jhanic factors, sometimes called the four jhanic factors. But these are the factors, um, I'll especially focus on the first four, which really uh, we can be aware of, and especially the first two, we can consciously work with them. These are the ones I mentioned, connecting with the object and staying with it. So I'll just say a little bit about these. And so uh, the connecting gets everything going, connecting with the object. And this is where we just keep on coming back. When we're off, we keep coming back, connect with the object and... Um, you know, this is where we might use the method method of being you know, labeling with the in-breath, out-breath, pause. That can really help us stay connected to the object. And then there's a second factor, which is further deepening, which is staying with the object. You know, the first term is, in the Pali, is vitaka. The second term is vichara. And... Um, there are different interpretations of these. I'm giving the main one that we typically use here. Um, and we learn to say that's where we um, start having a sense of the background thoughts. The, the connecting with the object especially helps us work with the more gross thoughts. But as we stay more with the object, we start to have a sense, okay, I'm kind of with the object and you know, I'm singing a song in the background or I'm working out some unresolved issue in the background, right? And so that's where we can use that um, sort of intensifying practice just, you know, once or twice or three times in a, in a sitting, just for two or three minutes, like really focus. And that can sometimes help cut through the, the, the background thoughts. The, the third really sign of deepening samadhi is this quality of 
pleasure or, um, you know, the, it's called PT in the original language and it's a kind of, sometimes it's like the, the subtle energy of the body starting to tingle or starting to, yeah, tingling is often a phenomenon that happens. And if you experience that, you can know that it's a sign of deepening samadhi. And we don't really want to do anything with it. We want to still stay with the object. Keep, you know, if anything happens in your experience, the general instructions are always stay with the object. If you focus on the phenomena that are occurring, the samadhi will, will decrease. That's, that's an important instruction. But it, I mean, we might be tempted, be very fascinating to see, oh, kind of tingling, let's, let's feel it, kind of cool. And, and we do it a little bit, but, but mostly keep on uh, deepening uh, by staying with the breath. And there can be sometimes with this PT, there can be sometimes images, could be sometimes uh, geometric forms come in one's eyes as one deepens. Different phenomena sometimes happen. If you're not having these experience, no problem. <laughs> okay. But just to say that sometimes in, when the PT occurs, there are these different phenomena that occur that are quite normal and, and natural. And then the fourth factor is called sukha, happiness or contentment. <clears throat> and that, as the uh, samadhi deepens, there's also this wonderful quality of contentment and peace and happiness, which is uh, more, more quiet and settled than the, uh, than the piti. You know, that it's sort of just a general, oh, just peace, ease, contentment, and it can be like that. And these two, um, these two last factors can play a significant role at times that, uh, um, you know, that there can be this quality of, of joy in, um, in developing samadhi. And it's also interesting that uh, the uh, kind of the, a, a sense of happiness and joy that might arise in some other way can also lead to the deepening of samadhi. You know, uh, my, my colleague Philip Moffat, whom some, you know, many of you know, I think, uh, from teaching here, and also elsewhere, um, he tells a story of being with the um, uh, one of his teachers, a Chan Sumedho, you know, who um, again I think we I mentioned we mentioned Sumedho in response to your question, yeah. And um, one at one retreat, Philip was kind of distracted, and things were you know I don't think he was frustrated because he knew, you know, you know, he knew how the process worked, but things were a little bit scattered. He wasn't really very stable. And then he thought about uh, Achan Sumedho, who he really found to be like a beloved teacher. And, he, and a lot of heart energy developed in him, appreciation. And he sat with that for a while. And after that, his mind just got quiet. That there's a way that the kind of the open heart and the heart of gratitude, appreciation, happiness can lead to a, a settled quality, right? Quite, quite beautiful. And I'll just be brief. The last of the five, which is uh, not in the suttas, but it's in the Vasudhimaga, 
is one-pointedness, which I, th I think really is already what we've been talking all about, you know, just that, that connection. So I think for most of the rest of the talk, I want, to I want to explore what are some of the challenges of developing samadhi and how do we work with them? And I think I'll, I'll finish, with, finish with that. And so the, these will be very familiar so I'm going to mention first the um, kind of the overactive mind. Anyone experience that today? Okay. It's, it's very helpful to look around. One of the good qualities of practicing with other people is one realizes that one's problems are not only one's own. Or, I don't know if that quite came out right, but you know what I mean. Right, that, uh, that basically that the issues come with the territory. And it's not personal. That's really, really important. Right? That it's not about me. It's just this, this challenging practice at times. The second is sleepiness and low energy. Anyone experience that at all today? Okay, look around. <laughs> it's important. A third is that in uh, developing more samadhi, there's often what we call sometimes a purification process where stuff comes up from the unconscious material that we maybe haven't looked at or maybe from the recent past comes up in a normal way and we work with it. It could be, you know, maybe there's been a loss in the last six months, significant loss, and we've been too busy to really process it. And that, uh, I think as almost everyone knows, that sort of thing comes up on retreat when we have this open time and space. So, but there are a lot of ways that, you know, that um, developing samadhi is a kind of purification process. Um, a fourth issue or challenge can be um, attachment to uh, um, concentrated states. How many of you would say, let me have that problem? <laughs> okay, okay, okay. I'm up for it, right. So, and then the last is uh, sort of uh, really related to the attachment is striving and over-efforting. That, that can be an issue as well. So let me go through these fairly briefly. So what to do with the um, overactive mind? Um, I think this is where uh, a lot of things, I think we know a lot of ways to work with it. One would be to really um, ground in the body. You know, be with the practice with Jonathan. If you know, you know, you could do a period of yoga, qigong, something like that as well, outside of our sessions. Um, I've worked with people with, for whom their overactive minds were not quieted by meditation, but they were quieted by body practices. That's sometimes the case, right? And so that can be, that can be quite helpful. Um, a few pointers. If uh, continual thinking about an unresolved issue, does anyone have any unresolved issues? Okay. Okay. About half the people raise their hands. Okay. And so um, 
But it's very natural, unresolved issues come up and the mind can be very active. One suggestion which I've often worked with in my own practice, which can be really helpful, is to, uh, to say something like this to oneself. It's really important to give careful attention to this issue. And I promise to, to take some time at the end of the retreat and see where I am with this issue when I'm still in a pretty quiet place, maybe the last evening or the last morning. And I promise to do that. But then when, um, um, when, when the unresolved issues comes up, I will say something like, not now. A little bit like training a puppy, not now. And, but then really keep the agreement to look at it later. That can often be really, really helpful. And something like, you know, other repetitive thoughts, uh, we can sometimes just say, not now. And like, it's like training a puppy. And, uh, you know, just uh, be clear what we're doing. You know, I, I know sometimes in my own um, practice developing samadhi, you know, um, especially longer retreats, you know, which I've done longer retreats developing samadhi. Um, you know, the days are long, not much happening, natural for thoughts to come. And sometimes I would, I would use techniques. The one I learned, you know, I think is more of a Tibetan technique where you, uh, where you suddenly, I think I was practicing in my own room, where you suddenly say, pay, and you just sort of use, <laughs> it's spelled P-H-A-T, and you, um, you say, say that, or you can say it internally, and you kind of give some energy to yourself just to stay with the practice that, that you can do. Um, another, another way I've practiced sometimes at the beginning of a session reflect that how things are developing is mysterious. Sort of take refuge in the mystery of things. Some of you may find that helpful at the beginning and say, I don't know how things were developed. They're, you know, it's, you know, it's not my plan that's working, <laughs> right? So let me just be, let me just be with the mystery. The second challenge is that of, again, of sleepiness and low energy. And again, we can know that it's normal sometime for a lot of us. We've been um, very busy and full. Right up to this, we have the added, you know, the added challenges of the uh, pandemic, right? And all the, you know, all the uh, period of time where things have been quite, quite difficult or hard. And so it's natural we would come to a retreat. Nothing's happening too much outwardly. And we just want to have a rest from it all, right? And so just to know, and especially the first day. And so just to know that that's, to know that it's normal. Again, um, sometimes, sometimes the sleepiness is there because um, there's kind of more concentration than energy. So we can do things if you're feeling sleepiness, do things which rouse energy. Maybe take um, a vigorous walk, 
when I'm, when I'm practicing samadhi, I do one vigorous walk a day, like for 40 minutes or something like that. And that can, that can sometimes be helpful just to get energy in the system, you know. And um, moderation in eating is helpful for sleepiness. Okay, that's an advanced practice. <laughs> okay. And then just try to bring in a sense of freshness and interest. Interest and, uh, again, feel free to stand up. The third uh, challenge is what I was calling the challenge of there being a purification process that as we deepen, um, things come up that maybe are more unconscious. It comes up in mindfulness retreats as well, but sometimes more, uh, more with samadhi. And in fact, uh, in some of the texts, samadhi practice is called the purification of mind and heart. And so we may, uh, we may have um, things come up. It might be some of the traditional so-called hindrances, could be doubt, restlessness. Sometimes things come up in the body, you know, where as we, as we deepen, some of our knots sometimes come up. I know I sat for probably a few years feeling kind of intense kind of contraction in my heart. That w- that's normal. So things happen like that. Sometimes there, there's a little movement in the body. Sometimes we have, I think I mentioned earlier, we can have distorted views of the body. Sort of distorted perception can be there for a while. So there are things can happen at the, at the level of, of the body. I remember once when I was practicing samadhi, um, I would walk out on the earth and every step I would take would feel like the earth was moving. That happened, that lasted for three days. And mostly I, I was working with Joseph Goldstein as a teacher at the time and I just went to him and he said, oh yeah, that happened to me once. And I said, okay. <laughs> that's, that's a lot of what we do, you know. <laughs> um, you know, and then there's, you know, then there's the unconscious material that can come up, you know, from um, childhood issues that are residuals of childhood issues and so forth. Uh, sometimes you know, there can be, uh, you know, judgmental mind energy towards self or towards others can come. And again, when something gets larger and lasts for a while, or, you know, it could be again, there was a loss in the last six months and grief comes up and stays for a while. It can be, uh, and, and in those instances, when, they, when it lasts for a while, we would shift from cultivating samadhi to mindfulness, maybe bring in some compassion practice if there's grief from something. You know, we don't go looking for those, but if they come up, we, we stay with them, right? And it's also a place where we can, can work, with, uh, work with the teachers. Um, The fourth uh, challenge I named was attachment to concentrated states, and it can kind of be linked with striving for concentrated states because they're, you know, we may have memories of them, and generally we want to just notice when there's attachment or whether striving or over-efforting, and again come back to that that balance of uh, sort of balancing 
the persistent energy with ease and relaxation. But we want to we want to notice it, and and sometimes you know it's possible that if we get overly attached to concentrated states, we sometimes can, you know, just want to go there and not, you know, I've I've met people who've mostly wanted to do concentration practice and it sometimes gets in the way of their own insight practice and actually working with the ways of insight practice that lead to greater freedom. So we can get attached, you know, that's a what... Uh, caution in the samadhi advertisement at the bottom of the advertisement page. Caution, you may get attached to this, but you know what to do. (laughs) And again, that can be related to striving and over-efforting. How many people find that at times of trying a little bit too hard? You know, that's very, very common, yeah. And uh, I I certainly did this. I think I, uh, I think I had a back, my meditative background was wanting to be a good meditator. Anyone else aspire to be a good meditator? And so... It's really tricky in meditation because how do you tell who's a good meditator? (laughs) I guess if we're up here, we must be good meditators. (laughs) But how do you tell if you're in the hall? And, you know, uh, I could say who cares, but, but for the person who wants to be a good meditator, it matters. And so I was, I wanted to be a good meditator. And so there weren't any really um, obvious ways. So I figured out two ways that I could be seen as a good meditator. One of them is I would sit for a really long time without moving. That must be a good meditator. And the other one was I would stay up late. And, you know, so it kind of gets involved what we could call competitive meditation. I remember sitting in the hall, you know, at midnight and there would be one other person I would say, I am not leaving first. (laughs) Now, you, you know where all this leads. Dukkha, <laughs> right? So, um, but it was also it didn't make sense. My, you know, I was at a lot of these retreats. I'd be on the same retreat with the person who was my mentor at the time. Uh, Joseph Goldstein was my first teacher, but a mentor for a lot of years was uh, Larry Rosenberg. Anyone know Larry, who from founded Cambridge Insight Meditation Center? He was my mentor for maybe four or five, six years. And Larry being on a lot of these retreats, and I knew Larry was really wise and a you know, wonderful practitioner. And he didn't sit for a long time, and he didn't stay up late. <laughs> anyway, but eventually, eventually it led to, um, I remember one retreat, I was really trying to concentrate and transcend. 
another problem. <laughs> One of the reasons that we're teachers is that we've made many, many more mistakes than most people, and we've kept a record of them. <laughs> so anyway, um, so I had one retreat where I was really wanting to go really deeply, concentrate a lot, and I got sick. And I was sniffling and moving the whole time and clearly not a good meditator. Mm-mm, no way. So that, that helped. That helped. Uh, that helped uh, do in the good meditator. So anyway, we, what we want, so we want to find a balanced effort. And again, intention goes very far. Intention, just keep making the intention to have that balance of persistence with ease and relaxation. And keep, you know, not, we, we can't control that, but we can have that intention. And just see what brings more ease uh, if, if, there, if there is over-striving. Um, you know, I mentioned that uh, there can be a way that being with the breath can really bring in the heart, can be almost devotional. This precious breath, this beautiful, the Buddha used the phrase beautiful breath. You know, and so forth. So, if there if there's overstriving, it can it can often be there because of very old, fairly deeply rooted tendencies. So have patience with it, you know, just to know and to keep keep uh, keep having the intention go the other the other direction. may be helpful to reflect that a lot of this practice is paradoxical. It's something like, I really want deepening of samadhi. In order to have deepening of samadhi, I have to forget about wanting it. (laughs) Something like that. Or I have to let go of the wanting being really strong, you know. Let's see. So I mentioned, I'll close with um, the last area that I said I talk about, which is again, a little more of the relationship of samadhi and insight practice, which we'll look at more starting tomorrow night. Um, And just the way that both are crucial, both are really crucial, you know, as as Achan Chah was saying, and um, the Buddha once said, one who has gained mental calm, but not the higher wisdom of insight, should make an effort to establish the one and attain the other. One who has gained the higher wisdom of insight, but not calm or samadhi, should make an effort to establish the one and attain the other. And if you have neither, develop both. (laughs) Okay. So I think I'll finish with uh, 
this is a little poem. Let's see. Yeah. This is a little poem that I wrote after a period of, uh, I think about three weeks of dedicating myself to cultivating samadhi. This ancient vocation of simplicity, purity of heart is to will one thing, said Kierkegaard. The breath opens the doors to outer life and to inner light, where we may for a time reside in silence, stillness, and brilliant space, and be brought refined, renewed, revived, revisioned, back to the next sounds, steps, and sights on this journey home. Let's sit for together silently for a bit. And see what may have resonated with you. I, I gave a lot of pointers and um, identified a lot of themes. See, often in a talk it's helpful just to see what are the one or two or three things which resonate, which I can apply to my practice. Give some space for letting those appear to you. We have now about uh, half an hour for walking. Feel free to sit a little more if, 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 if you'd like to. About half an hour walking. Then we come back for the last sitting of, of, the, of the day. And we'll do a little bit of chanting at the end. And a uh, question, um, Devin, you were going to lead that, right? Um, would you be, what, what do you think about having it be a little shorter given the length of the day, right? So, so yeah, so we're going to have that, uh, the last sitting will be a little, will be shorter. So, so not, not too extended. Okay, just so, um, be great to see you. We'll do some chanting and um, finish earlier than the scheduled time. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.